Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Ruth Davidson, the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives. And this is even more wonderful than you will have imagined. This is searing political analysis straight from the heart and from the head. Um, a lot of personal stuff as well, light and shade. Ruth is just phenomenal company and a really gifted politician and hard to believe that in her 40s has already stepped back from elected politics. But we talk about that and life in the House of Lords as well as all the other things she does. But this is just an hour in the company of someone who is a, a really great thinker and is very considered, but also deeply, deeply passionate. And that really comes across passionate in her personal and private life, passionate in her political life. And uh, this is just, it, it, you will be gripped from start to finish as the audience on the night were. And thank you to all of you, those of you who came. Um, just to let you know some future guests, and some of these haven't been announced yet. So uh, this is the first time I'm letting you know about some of these. On Monday, the 17th of April, the next live show is with Jess Phillips. Needs no introduction, an absolute megastar. Uh, on Monday, the 22nd of May, my guest is David Blunkett, uh, a heavyweight of the new Labour era. And fascinating as well, with Labour really positioning themselves on crime now and making that a lot about Keir Starmer's political identity, someone who was known when Home Secretary was being very tough on crime. So perfect timing to be talking to, uh, effectively, the former Labour holder of that mantle. Uh, on Monday, the 5th of June, a very rare interview with the former Chancellor, Philip Hammond. And that would just be fin just absolutely fascinating because that's someone who was Chancellor during the Theresa May period. And one can only imagine what he makes of what uh, followed. Um, then on the 3rd of July, so there's a, there's a show on the 19th of June. I can't announce that guest yet, but I'm very excited to be able to announce that soon. On the 3rd of July, my guest is Joe Lysett, uh, the phenomenal comedian. Um, and uh, be warned, he is incredibly right wing. But um, on to the show. Uh, and as always, uh, we begin with um, some comedy about another outrageous fortnight in British politics. What a phenomenal fortnight it has been in British politics with the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson appearing at the Standards and Privileges Committee. I don't know if anyone here watched it. And there's an amazing bit at the start where he, he swears on the Bible. There's this mad bit where they say he prepared to swear on the Bible. I say, yeah, I'll swear on the Bible. I swear by Almighty God that I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You think, if ever there was a moment for God to show his face, <laughs> a crack of thunder or some bit at all, shit, mummy, would have been great. You think that's the moment we should have known, but um, absolutely phenomenal watching Boris Johnson at the career. Three hours worth, and I watched every single second of it. And uh, what do we say? He starts off, I mean, it's so funny watching him veer through all his different personas, but his, uh, his defence of the party, I still believe these were within the law, but you, you must remember, he says, uh, the, look, the reason we had uh, some gatherings was that I thought they were good for morale. <laughs> the sort of David Brent defence. <laughs> And then he veers. What's really funny about watching him is he, he just knives Rish, Rishi Sunak at will. So anything he did, he will always get his head. Well, I did, uh, yes, I did. Uh, the police uh, gave me a fixed penalty notice, as he did the current Prime Minister. Uh, and no, 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 I was at that gathering, as was the current Prime Minister. <laughs> so, no, I, I, yes, I am a lying bastard, but so is the current Prime Minister. Just like constantly knifing him at a rate that's just, uh, yes, I, well, I did fart, but so does the current Prime Minister. <laughs> 
everything he's trying to weave it in. But it's watching him veer from, he starts off this sort of ashen face. You know, we saw that towards the end of his reign, where he would do this sort of ashen face. You know, really good at acting, sort of ashamed in the moment. And then that lasts for about a minute until he's asked a question. And then he goes into this sort of like squealing, he does this sort of double fist action and hype. Okay, no, 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 I... I want to help the committee I, I, I get to the bottom of a yeah, terrible thing. And then the moment they say, but it was against the it wasn't against the it And it's, it, you can't help with this sort of really childish thing he does. No, 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 I, you, no, 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 I, I understand, but that's the point. You have to understand, it's not the bloody point. It's almost, it, obviously, it's like a childish thing. It's like he's sort of being periodically electrocuted. Uh, with no warning, no, no, no. But I was at on the 27th, and that was why I was doing it. And obviously, this is his way. You know, every politician has their trick, you know, the bit where they do the really convincing thing. Now, Tony Blair, obviously, was a very convincing salesman. But he never resolved, you know, had he turned up to Chilcot and said, uh, well, look, of course, I, I believed that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. He'll give you the intelligence again. I'm telling you what to do. He's fucking lost it. There's no way to make a case. But he... Um, he, uh, he, he tried his best. Uh, of course, the biggest news, the biggest news um, that came out of the, uh, the, the, um, his testimony to the committee, I mean, what's really funny watching him is he dangles. To be fair to him, he's sort of got comedic skills. He would dangle to try and just burn time, just irrelevant facts, in the hope that some member of the committee will buy... And at one point he goes, well, I, I think at that gathering I had uh, a kind of salad. Are you expecting that to be an avenue? Like, waste half an hour to... Well, what sort was it? Uh, well, I think it was one of these ones you get in a... Uh, what was it? A sort of plastic tub from... It seems to be a little a sort of translucent disc with uh, a sort of lettuce and uh, tomato. One tomato. I don't know why you need one tomato. And, uh, and some shaved carrot that have gone dry. But, uh, no, no, no. Maybe a radish. It, but, of course, the... Um, the big news, really, at a UK level is that we now have a new First Minister of Scotland, Humza Youssef. More popular here than he is in Scotland. So, uh, <laughs> amazing watching him take over Hamza Youssef and really funny watching him. Um, well, he started off, actually, by quoting John Smith, obviously famously a Scottish Labour politician. And SNP politicians do this a lot. They'll say, to quote John Smith. And they will quote big figures from Labour history. And obviously, it's cheeky. They know what they're doing. They're, they're appealing to Labour voters primarily. But it's partly because... You can only draw the conclusion, actually, there aren't many people from SNP history it's socially acceptable to quote um, for a number of reasons. You're like, why do you never quote your own? You look at the history of the SNP, it becomes abundantly clear. Is it the leader that uh, undermined Britain's war effort against the Nazis in 1945? Is it the SNP MPs in 1979 who willfully collapsed the Labour government and ushered in Thatcherism? Is it Alex Salmond? No need for me to have to explain why. Must be, I mean, it's a nightmare for any new SNP leader. There's no one from their own history they can quote. Yeah, chuck us that big uh, book of uh, SNP quotes. Now, I've got my new speeches, uh, First Minister. I've looked through it. Uh, no, that's terrible. Uh, God, that is morally reprehensible. This is dated very badly. And this is just Nicola's last speech. <laughs> but he did manage to say a few things, Some to Yusuf. And to be fair to him, he was, he was emotional. And it's a, big, it's a huge achievement for anyone to become leader of a party or a country. It's a fair dues. But some of the things he said... <laughs> And this is his first words as leader of the SNP. Like to me, he went, I'm the luckiest guy alive. <laughs> Mate, you've just become leader of a country. It's not a fucking scratch card. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with all this, to be honest. It's not reassuring, is it? I feel so lucky. You're like, 
Mate, you're lucky. I'm the luckiest guy in LA. You're leading the country, mate. You're not proposing to it. I'm just a gay standing in front of a country, asking 45% of it to continually delude itself. But he said a few things. I mean, you know, it's, it's always not... As a, someone who's a fan of politics, I like seeing people win, and there's something about, you know, whatever your political difference, you say, OK, well, let's see how this leader's going to do it. Let's see how they're going to uh, deal with it. Um, but he uses a phrase... And this is the problem. The SNP have not reached out to people who voted no in that referendum. So they've got a core vote that's enough to win elections, but they can't make the case for a referendum. And they've got no desire. They all say, oh, we will now reach out. Later on in his speech, he uses a phrase that a lot of nationalist politicians used in Scotland about people who don't like Scottish independence. And this is the phrase they say, those who are not yet convinced. I think that would drive me fucking mad. Part of the reason those people are not yet convinced is because you keep using phrases like that. That and you don't basically grasp economics and all the other shit. But the main problem is this idea that, oh, you poor resource, those who are yet... There's a sort of church element. I believe there's a non-believer in the parish today. <laughs> Bring forward these who are not yet convinced. No, 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 that's okay. Tell the congregation why you fucking hate your own country. That's right. You will eventually be convinced. It makes it feel like a mad church. So mad, even Kate Forbes didn't want to be a member of it. But uh, to be fair to you, you know what I love about watching British politics is it's absolute proof that we still live in a free country, whether it's Sam Coach yelling at Tory ministers outside number 10 or the live on Sky. I was watching Hamza Yusuf become leader of the SNP. He does his speech, he's very emotional. Of course, it's a huge personal achievement, particularly for someone from his background because not many people from private schools get to run countries these days. <laughs> and... Um, but it is still a huge personal achievement. Obviously, the first Muslim to lead a Western developed nation. It's a huge thing. And it's emotional. You kind of feel for him as a fan of politics. And then the media starts asking questions. The guy from Sky goes, you're incompetent, you're weak, and your government is buckling under allegations of corruption. How do you expect to turn this round? <laughs> this is absolutely like the proudest moment. He's in tears. His mum and dad are children there. Just become first minister of the country he loves. You're a fucking idiot. <laughs> Him and Douglas Ross, Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Tories, really winds up the SNP. And um, he really got to Humza Yusuf. And Humza Yusuf, you know when a politician or anyone immediately contradicts themselves, he went, I will not sink to personal attacks like Douglas Ross, who's a third-rate politician running a third-rate party. <laughs> I'm not going to lower myself to name-calling like Chunky McSweaty Balls over there. <laughs> of course, a big week for the Labour Party. They launched their local elections campaign. And uh, you may have seen the big pledge on this from Keir Starmer was to freeze council tax. The choice of words he chose was really comical because he sold it in a way. He went, if you elect Labour... At these local elections, we're going to freeze your council tax. Yes, you heard it right. Not a penny more on your bill last year. Not a penny more than you paid last year. Like, it's selling it like it's double glazing. <laughs> With the Labour Party, if you pay for the front door, you get the back door free. I said, you buy one, you get one free. Really becomes Josh Widdicombe at a high note, that. But I'm still going to persevere trying to get it right. And... Uh, it's really funny as well, you know, at local election time, this is when parties have their big national slogans and they're trying to fit them into, like, local elections. <laughs> and it was in Swindon the other day, he goes, we're going to build a better Britain. We're going to build a better Swindon. <laughs> there's something about local British areas. I'll say that the people of Rill deserve better. 
They were saying the same in Chepstow last night. There's something about small English places that sounds so comical when you're trying to make them into big, um, grand political schemes. And he's got a new attack line on the Tories. He goes, on the environment. They're just rehashing stuff they'd already said. It's not Green Day, it's Groundhog Day. <laughs> it's not bad, yeah. He's not an American idiot, he's a British idiot. It's not the Boulevard of Broken Dreams, it's a Boulevard of Broken Promises. It's not Blink 182, it's Blink and you miss the two things they've actually achieved. It's not Linkin Park, young people are drinking in the park and they've cut the numbers of CSOs to deal with it. Became more laborious as that went on, but... I enjoyed myself at the laptop this afternoon and I didn't want you guys to miss out. He, uh, obviously, he's on a roll at the moment, um, uh, Keir Starmer, and crime is his big thing. In a way that it's not been for any Labour leader since Blair, and obviously Keir Starmer has a personal track record no politician in the land has. And he had this line at the start of this crime speech the other day, he went, the murderers of Stephen Lawrence, Al-Qaeda terrorists, MPs, Labour and Tory who gained the system for their own financial gain I prosecuted them all. I thought, yeah. I love it. When Labour politicians are tough on crime, I think it sounds... He might as well have gone, yobs, terrorists and pedos. I locked them up before and I'll do it again. <laughs> now, yeah, you get in there, Keir. You show how tough you are, pal. At one point, he said, fighting crime is a Labour value. It made it sound like he was going to become a vigilante. <laughs> Either the government will fight crime or I will tonight on the streets with this cosh. <laughs> quite a funny vigilante. Uh, it's sort of Bruce Wayne-esque, isn't he? He's sort of uh, quite a dashing guy who could uh, be a vigilante by night. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? <laughs> well, you shouldn't have. It's against local bylaws. <laughs> he, uh... He also has this thing now, Keir Starmer. Obviously, he has a lot of emotional heft. And you can see, obviously, people will have seen it the other month, friend of the show, friend of the show. You've seen it here live at the Duchess Theatre. But he, he puts a lot of profound meaning into small things. And you'll see, he'll say this, you know, parks aren't just about blades of grass. They're where children get to exercise, where dreams are made. You know, I think you could genuinely take any mundane British thing. A cup of tea. Isn't just a tea bag, some hot water, some milk. And if you're lucky, sugar, if you're very lucky, sugar, it is the fundament on which self-improvement is made. It underpins reflection and, and restoration in a way. Every sip is a break from the mess the Tories have made of this country. You know, they do this thing at election times, like Worcester Woman. And uh, last time it was Workington Man. And there's a headline in the Times this afternoon, and it said, Starmer told to woo Stevenage woman. And it made it sound like he had to find a specific person and seduce her. Could just find that one woman and get her into bed, I can win the next election. Where is Stevenage woman? I mean, Stevenage woman sounds like something found in a peat bog. Her bones are from the Neolithic era, but apparently she holds the key to the next general election for some reason. But of course, the biggest story internationally is Donald Trump has been arrested, the first president to be indicted uh, ever. Um, and uh, it's for um, payments made to the porn star, uh, Stormy Daniels, uh, that then were declared as an election expense. <laughs> Which, that's the problem. It's how he accounted for it is what was illegal. And that in itself is funny. But it's funny the way the British media treats Stormy Daniels. The adult film star, Stormy Daniels. As if, like, it's sort of like legitimate films that people would watch. 
in cinemas. And they're the only types of porn stars, and you'll see this, because Gwyneth Paltrow's been in court. And when Gwyneth Paltrow's in court, news reporters can't help weaving in former film titles. There was a sliding doors moment for Gwyneth Paltrow today in court. As it turned out, she didn't crash into an Iron Man. And the film she was in, Stormy Daniels doesn't get that on the news at 10. It'd make for a far better news report. The star of The Humper Games and Shaving Ryan's Privates was in court today. The star of Throbbing Hood may have found her hardest opponent yet. I mean, people worry about the Americanisation of our politics in this country. I don't think that's ever going to happen to any... I don't think Rishi Sunak's ever going to be in court for stuff like this. The Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is the first sitting Prime Minister to be indicted after it turned out he'd had sex with Katie Price, paid her £100,000 to keep quiet and then declared it as election expenses. Well, yeah, I, I bonked her with integrity, professionalism and accountability. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. And what a special guest we have on the show uh, this evening. I've interviewed tonight's guest uh, before, but never in London. And this is a great privilege. She became one of the breakout stars of British politics in a time when people were desperate for politicians with personality and character, charisma, wit and warmth. She has all those things in bucket loads. She personally revived the Tory party in Scotland and the relative success of the party is still down to her legacy. She's someone that many people across Scotland, even those that support independence, were deep down, if they will admit it, love to see her as First Minister. I think a lot of people would have liked to have seen her lead the Tory party. Who knows if she'll one day become Prime Minister. She still has a lot of road left. She's one of the most charismatic uh, and just one of the most enjoyable people I've ever spent time with. That sounds like something else happened. It didn't. Please, <laughs> welcome to the stage, Ruth Davidson. <laughs> Ruth, welcome yeah, to the show. Thank you. Don't tell him about that one beautiful night that we had. <laughs> I still remember it often and with warmth. See, I don't remember a thing, so um, <laughs> just remind me. What happened well, again? Well, I, I roofied you, uh, and then... No, no, no. You what? Me? Roofied? Yeah, Rohypnol. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is that oh, what the fine. kids call it? <laughs> oh, it's just that. That's cool. Um, <laughs> so, Ruth, welcome to uh, London. Mm -hmm. What's going on in Scotland? Um, well, we've got a new First Minister. Politics continues to be interesting. Uh, and, I, you know, I feel sorry for the Welsh because they also have a First Minister and they also have a Parliament. And do you know what? Nobody pays them any bloody attention um, because we're forever fighting like sort of ferrets in a sack in Scotland. And what do you make of the new First Minister? Well, actually, um, Hamza and I came in together. So we were in the same intake at Holyrood. So I know him pretty well, probably... I would say I feel like I know him better than, than Nicola, actually, because he's, he's very collegiate, um, you know, he's very hail fellow well met, uh, and I like him, and everybody likes him, and all his colleagues like him, and all the opposition like him, and all the journalists like him, and not a single soul thinks he's up to the job. <laughs> I thought you were about to defect. <laughs> so, oh, my God. No, what, no, no. What a scoop you've given me. Um, <laughs> It, but is that... It, are they hard words to say, then? Because if, if you know... And I know there are no real friends in politics, although I think perhaps there are. But, you know, you really like the guy, but then you... you well, there are friends in the politics, knife. actually. There are people that you, you really get on with. Um, and because of the way in which you work together, and, and in 
elections and things like that, you, you spend so much time with people and, and you kind of forge bonds because there's incoming fire from everybody else and, and your, your proper good mates in politics are the ones that are, will always be there for you. Um, that doesn't often happen across party, um, although quite often the people that you'll go for a quiet kind of pizza with to decompress come from other parties so that you can have a proper good moan about your own lot without anyone thinking, without it getting back to anyone in your own lot. So, um, so yeah, so I've got friends both in the Tory party uh, and that I've worked very closely with, um, but I've also got friends outside it. So, have you enhanced... Which is a total politician's way of not answering the question you asked me. You know what, I fooled me, because yeah. I thought you were doing a great job. So, have you ever been for pizza with Hamza, then? Is that... Uh, I've never been for pizza with Hamza, but I have been for pizza with uh, MSPs from other parties. Okay, so, uh, compared to Nicola Sturgeon, then, because you mm. and her were, were adversaries, you're someone you, you had to do TV debates against, uh, you yeah. know, it was a fiery, feisty time in Scottish and British politics. Do you then think she was more competent than him, even though she's someone that you disagreed with? Um, I've always been pretty clear about the fact that actually, um, in many ways, I admire Nicola Sturgeon. She is a bright woman. She's hardworking. She's serious of purpose. Uh, she is competent. She has a crosser brief. She's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say she's competent, I, I mean, it looks like the record of the Scottish Government is finally being fully assessed in a way that it wasn't when she was there. And, Competence isn't a word that springs to mind. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. So I think that for a long time, um, you know, don't look over here of what we've done, here's the flag we're waving. Got them very far. Got cool flag, at... though. Well, I mean, I, it's all our flag, though. It's not just theirs. That's what we have to make sure we get it back. OK. Um, but, uh, oh, thanks. Uh, these lights are so bright, I can't see a single soul. Uh, I can't even see how many heads are here. But, um, but yes, it sounds like the, the London Scottish diaspora are in, so thank you. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of her personal um, being across a brief and all the rest of it, um, yeah, she, she would make sure that all her boxes were read. She made sure that she was on top of the detail. You know, she applied herself to her job. Whether she had the vision, whether she had the strategy, whether she had all these other things, uh, I think is in question if you look at where the country is and where some of public services are. But in terms of her own capacity for hard work, you know, I, I you know, I'm... I'm I'm not going to kick her on the way out the door. And, uh, Sorry if that's what you want your money's worth for, uh, if that's what you bought a ticket for. No, not at uh, all. Um, have, you, have you messaged her since she ceased to be the First Minister? Or since she announced nope. she was going? No, I haven't. She messaged you? Nope. When was the last time you spoke? Um, probably on my last day of term, actually. Uh, directly, um, yeah, probably on my last day of term in Holyrood. So that would be May 2021. Do you know what? That's only a couple of years ago. It feels mm. like it was a lifetime ago. Yeah, it, does, it was a completely it? different era. Um, and, and Sturgeon but, was someone that you had to... Oh, go on. But she and I, in a weird way, she, she won't know any of this, um, but um, I was a political journalist for 10 years before I got involved in politics and, and kind of jumped the fence. And because she was around from the very start of the, uh, of the, the parliament, um, I interviewed her a number of times. Um, and when I was... Very early on in my career, I was working at a little local radio station called uh, Kingdom FM for the mighty Kingdom of Fife. Uh, and as well as doing weekday afternoons and evenings, I did Sunday mornings. And because she was always very ambitious, I knew that if I phoned her, uh, even at seven in the morning on a Sunday, somebody would answer the phone and pass the phone across to her in bed. She would always give me an interview. And I think I did it like on purpose to see if it kept happening for like week after week after week. And then... Uh, I stood in a by-election in 2010 
in Glasgow uh, North East. And it was the last by-election for the 2010 general election. And Gordon Brown was paranoid he was going to lose it to the SNP. And he didn't call, he didn't move the writ for five months. Usually by-elections are six weeks. Five months. So there was only so many times you could like do street parades with shadow cabinet. I had 13 shadow cabinet members, including David Cameron and George Osborne and Francis Maud and, uh, you know, William Haig and all these other people come up to this, this little bit of Glasgow. And on the like the last week before the election, we were doing this walkabout in the main street. Uh, and I was there with like Tory balloons and, and the, the leader of the Scottish Tories, Annabel Goldie and some other people. And we were walking down one end of the street and we just saw the yellow and black balloons coming the other way and it was Nicola Sturgeon. And, and we had a camera crew with us. And I was like, oh God, what do we do? And I was the candidate. So in, in a, I don't know, a fit of madness, I ran across the road to say hi, to show that we're all like good pals and all the rest of it. And the thing that you don't know about Nicola Sturgeon is she's really petite, she's tiny, she's absolutely tiny. She's maybe like five foot two, size eight or ten, you know, tiny. And I picked her up in this massive bear hog and I gave her a like, big cuddle. And the look in her face was as if I had shat in her handbag. Uh, honestly, it was... They just she, they, she couldn't compute. There was, like, a Tory that was, like, touching her uh, and, like, being nice. And, oh, my God, I've never hugged her since. Like, I, like, it just... Um, but, yes, so, so, like, like all these little vignettes down the years. And, and like you say, done loads and loads of... of TV debates and stuff together, and the BBC and STV, like, they've got these lovely big studios in Glasgow. They never want to use them. They always want you to go to some refurbished church somewhere that now does a charitable thing. I was just about to say, it was ch- they're always in always churches. In, always in an ex-church. But they're so echoey in those places. Well, one, the sound's not great, and also backstage, when you're getting changed and stuff like that, you're all in this tiny wee room, so we've probably seen each other in our tights and knickers more times than either of us would be comfortable <laughs> with, to be honest, getting mic'd up, and because we're, we're women, we don't like, for a TV debate, neither of us would wear trouser suits or anything like that, so we'd have any pockets, don't have waistbands. You'd be in a dress. So you're having to, like, hook the mic pack onto your bra strap and all the rest of it. So, so actually, despite the fact that we come out and then just go, rawr, we're, we're, like, all terribly nice to each other backstage. And, or, and oh, oh, could, oh, do you mind if I just move this over here and, like, your elbow in the face and pulling your tights on and all sorts? It's, like, it's madness. Like, the behind the curtain of politics is madness. It's so funny that you have these sort of intimate, half-naked moments. And yeah. Then, I can't imagine Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer backstage in their boxer shorts, like, <laughs> readjusting no, each other. I have other. seen Tommy Sheridan in his pants. But most people in Scotland have. Well, most people in Scotland have seen him out of his pants. Uh, but I was sent to interview him when I was with a different radio station. I was sent to interview him uh, when he was doing this charity football match uh, in Glasgow in the main square. You know how they used to do the tenant sixes in there and stuff like that? Yes, kind in of George a, Square. Yeah, a kind of equivalent of that. Uh, and I got sent to interview him and he just like, like opened the changing room door. So I was just like, all right, as he's like dropping his kecks and stuff. And I'm a bit like, I, I mean... I mean, I think all men are dirty and I don't touch them just as a point of principle. But, um, like, he's a really hairy man. When, when all the transcripts started coming out about five or ten years later and, and the stuff that was allowed to make the air and the stuff that wasn't allowed to make the air, yeah, I mean, do you know, there was no case of mistaken identity from anyone involved or their car keys, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> So just, just to come back to you, you and Nicola Sorry, we, we, yeah, we went down a hole there, didn't we? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. I remember seeing a lovely photo. I know. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. I, credit me with something for not... Um, I saw a lovely photo of Nicola Sturgeon offering you maybe a Malteser or Sweeties, something? Sweeties, yeah, yeah. Before a debate. Yeah, I think that was a studio one. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So, like, we're, we're, we're pleasant to each other. Our mummy's raised us right. We can have a civilised conversation. But we're not going to go out for pizza and beer. But when you watch... I don't know if you still watch FMQs or if you watch Proceedings of Holyrood, do you watch it and think, God, I wish I was still in there? <laughs> don't watch it. <laughs> I mean, you're in the I mean, majority. I'm in I've, the minority. I've slightly got PTSD about it, to be honest. No, I don't. Um, yeah, uh, you know, if it's on... Like, I see clips on Twitter and stuff like that, but to be honest, I, I work, so, you know... <laughs> do you ever pop Lunch, in? 12 o'clock on a Thursday. Um, I've, been back to the, I've been back to Hollywood a couple of times on a couple of events in there. I've gone back to see people and go for lunch and, you know, they're my colleagues for 10 years. So, um, so yeah, I, I have gone back in, but I've never gone back into the chamber to sit in the balcony. That would be the oddest thing. It'd be really weird. But what, do you think you'd find it too emotional? No, it'd just be odd. <laughs> Or like going back to a primary school or something. The chairs would be too small. Yeah, maybe. Well, um, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Just. It must be difficult, I think, for ex-footballers to watch it from the stands. Be the yes. same thing. If you've been on the pitch, it's difficult to watch it from the stands. You could go in as a protester. Well, they're ten a penny these days. <laughs> yeah. So funny how often that we're going to have to. To well, be fair to Douglas one, Ross. Also, in the first one, they, they just decided they got so exasperated by the fifth interruption that they cleared the entire balcony, including some poor kids from Greenock <laughs> Primary School that were there who had been as good as gold. Like they'd all been to the toilet, they'd gone in twos, they sat in their hands, they'd been yeah. like delightful kids. They all got, and then to punish them, they made them come back and listen to the rest of it. Well, that was the funniest thing. Some guy goes. Um, Point of order, uh, presiding officer. Some of those kids are from a local primary school. They're innocent. I suggest we suspend proceedings and let the children back in. They go, okay, we're going to suspend proceedings, get the children back in. It's like the sweetest way to deal with protest. Um, And Douglas Ross, your your successor, there was one Mm. the other week where... Um, he was on mic when someone started hecking again. He just God, he was like sort of mid to go, and the Scottish president, and then there's a protest. Go, oh, for fuck's sake! It's actually summed up how I imagine a lot of people feel. Yeah, do you know, like, he, and he was very gracious about it as well when he realised it'd been caught on camera. And his apology later on in the session, uh, especially to his mum, uh, was was um, was pretty good. But of course, like you're human, and if you were at your work and you were doing something that you'd been prepping for all morning and it was like a big presentation and it was just constantly had something in your ear, you would go off for fake sake. Yeah. I mean, of course you would. Like, it's just natural. And uh, do you guys ever talk? Do you give him advice? Does he seek it? Um, well, I mean, he's, he's been involved in the party for longer than me, actually. So he was a, a counsellor before I even joined and was working for an MSP and stuff like that. So he's got a pretty broad and, and long hinterland and I wouldn't presume to, to you know give him unsolicited advice, but if he comes and asks for it, then of course. Um, and I helped out um, a little bit with the 2021 election campaign. I see him because he's also an MP. He's in the House of Commons when I'm in the House of Lords, so we run into each other. So I, I've, I get on well with Dougie, I always have. And do you, if, you, if you might not miss the chamber, do you miss standing for election, being a candidate? Yeah, I, I kind of do, um, because I love elections. They were always my favourite bit of the job, actually. And... Being a politician is funny because it's more than one job. So, uh, you, you know, you, you do the kind of parliamentary bit. You also do the constituency bit. If you're leading a political party, you do the frontman bit. You know, there's, there's policy and then there's strategy and then there's campaigns and then there's uh, actual management, like party management to run a political party. So it's all of these different skills and nobody's brilliant at all of them. Um, the bit that I, I loved, like I loved elections, which is just as well because I, I think I had seven national elections in eight years because we just we were really busy for that for that period um 
And it's, it's great. Like, if, if you don't love elections, don't be in politics, I guess. Because you're young to be in the Lords. Is there a part of you that thinks, in a way, you, you've cut off something you might have gone back to? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't... I mean, I, I, you're, you're allowed to sit in Holyrood mm. as a Lord, so that's not being cut mm. off, for example. And we've had many, so George Fikes was in there, James Douglas Hamilton was in there, Annabel Goldie, double-hatted. Um, she was put up to the Lords while she was still in Holyrood and, and did a couple of years, so there's nothing to stop you doing both. But I, 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 it is... Here's, here's a politician's answer. I have no current plans to return to Hollywood. <laughs> also, my wife would kill me, and then she'd divorce me. In that order. Kill me first, and then divorce me if I went back to it. Because there was a period of time where people were saying, Ruth Davidson needs to be the next leader of the Tory party at a oh. UK level. You were so popular, you were very different in style and That was tone. David Cameron's fault. Because he came to Scotland for a, a manifesto launch and was interviewed afterwards and was like... I don't know, he must have like, been having a difficult week or whatever, because it was like, and, and who's going to follow you as a future Prime Minister and all this sort of stuff? And he said, well, he just kind of looked at him, why not her? <laughs> you know, it was really like, he could have just said, why not table? Why not lamp? Why not? You know, it was kind of that guy from Anchorman, Brick yeah, Tamil. I love lamp. It just says the thing that's in front of them. I was in front of him, and, and I think that's how it started. So I don't think there was any kind of seriousness about it. But you're also very talented and likeable, and... What people always oh, say Matt, is, you silver tongue, like <laughs> you. But people always say it. I mean, the thing that people always say is, they can't believe you're a Conservative. <laughs> and I think they mean that... I, but I think they mean that in a nice way. I think you're letting your prejudices show. No, I'm saying that other people say Is that, that what you're saying? I would never say something so ignorant and dumb. <laughs> um, but no, I think people look at you and go, oh, you're the sort of person who could appeal to people who don't vote Conservative. Well, I think growing up at the time that I grew up in Scotland, I mean... It, like in the I, 90s? I, I mean, you're about 15. Like, <laughs> I'm older than you, despite Yeah, the but fact you don't look it. Oh, bless you. <laughs> what do you want from me tonight, Matthew? Just, just exclusives galore. <laughs> just slag everyone off. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, the, the thing that's weird now is because of social media and because of kind of culture wars and all the rest of it, there are lots of people in politics that only talk to people that already agree what they agree with. And, you know, growing up in Fife in the 90s, if I only spoke to Tories, I'd be pretty bloody lonely. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, like, I, I, in terms of being able to... And also, I like debate. Like, I think that's what's good about democracy. I think that's what's good about politics is, you know disagreeing agreeably is the best bit about it and the ideas clash and the arguments and the kind of pub at 3am but no here's another thing and blah 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 like that's that's part of what's good about politics and if you do it in the right way it's really healthy and your arguments get better when they're challenged and I've, I've always enjoyed debate. And obviously one of the big debates across the UK across the world but particularly in Scotland was about gender recognition, yeah. self-ID at 16, uh, and it feels like that really hastened Nicola Sturgeon's departure. Um, what's your view of, of not just the self-ID at 16, but the, the wider debate about trans rights and gender as opposed to sex identity? So the thing that I find the absolute tragedy in all of this is that the people that are screaming at each other the loudest, that are getting more and more entrenched, none of them are trans. These are all people that are using this as a proxy war. Uh, and the, in terms of where we should be getting to, we should be getting more sophisticated as time passes and, and all of these things happen. And we're actually... I, I think politics is regressing uh, in terms of the ability to, to have a respectful argument. And 
you don't have to have a hierarchy of rights. You don't have to pit people against each other. You can make it better for trans people um, who are one of the most marginalised, one of the most victimised, uh, one of the most likely to suffer crime, uh, one of the you know one of the most vulnerable sections of society, and you can protect women's rights. And and we've got to a stage where we we now think that we can't do either of these things without the expense of the other. And, and I think that's a tragedy. And why do you think someone like Nicola Sturgeon, who would describe herself as a feminist, is all the things that you said about her, she's bright, she's across her brief, how did she end up trying to bring that law in and, and really standing behind it in the way that she did? Yeah, I, I mean, there was so much about the way in which it was done that was inexplicable. So um, one of the amendments that was put forward in the Scottish Bill was by a woman called Michelle Thompson, uh, who had been an MP, um, had lost her seat and, and come into Holyrood as an MSP. And one of her standout moments in the House of Commons when she was in was she talked really movingly about having been raped and having been raped while she was quite a young teenager. I think she was 14 at the time. And it, it was one of those moments that you sometimes get where, you know, you cannot fail but to be with the person that's speaking for the entire... Like you're captivated by it and to listen to it and to listen to the pain that was behind it and the, the kind of... the way in which she's had to heal. Um, um, the amendment that she put forward to the Scottish Bill was to pause. It wasn't to stop, it wasn't to deny, it wasn't anything. It was to pause um, anybody that's accused of such a crime, such as rape, um, to, you know, the idea of transitioning or, or identifying as a new gender until the point of their trial. So only until they were in court. It wasn't to stop them in perpetuity, it wasn't anything else, it was just to pause it. Uh, and Nicola Sturgeon whipped her own members to vote against that, against her own member that had, had talked about all of this in her past. And, and I, I, just, I, I just, I couldn't understand, not just the politics of it, I just, I just couldn't understand how you could get to that place, to be honest with you. And... and I mean, I don't know how involved you are in the sort of political element of the LGBT community, but it feels as if, though, that there's a potential schism there. And, you know, I see all sorts of things on social media, which I know isn't the best way to judge this, but is there a risk that there's, there's LGB and there's T, and there's a, there's a risk that actually those identities can be very different? Well, actually, way, way back, you know, when all of this kind of really kicked off and the trans debate started kicking off maybe three years ago, maybe four years ago... Um, it started to be set up as uh, trans against lesbians, particularly, so particularly trans women against lesbians. Uh, and there was a very, very strong rebuttal of that, of the idea that, that actually, no, we don't want to have external forces pitting us against each other, thank you very much, because our journeys, while not the same, uh, have often been um, simpatico, uh, and the same people... Uh, who are condemning one are condemning the other. And how do you feel then? Because Kate Forbes almost became First Minister of Scotland. Now, I, I know that you would disagree with her on the Constitution. I'm sure there are things you do agree with her on. She seems to be on the right of her party when it comes to economics and, and things like that. But when you've got a, a, a leading politician almost becoming First Minister who's got the belief she's got rooted in her religious faith about gay marriage, about abortion social issues that I, I, I would presume you disagree with. Can you extrapolate what that says about Scottish politics, Scotland as a country, Britain as a country, or is it just that, you know, yeah. this was, a, this was a, a crossroads for the SNP and she was the candidate against Hamza Youssef? 
Yeah, so in terms of key, I think, I think the kind of first thing to say is, you, you know, I, I'm a member of the Church of Scotland, the, the kind of um, the national church in Scotland. Um, I'm a former Sunday school teacher. I probably don't go as much as I should or uh, adhere as strongly as I, I once did. But, um, you know, I was raised in the church. My mum spent 12 years as a Sunday school superintendent. I wasn't allowed to compete in sports stuff when I was a kid because I would miss too many Sundays and, and things like that. So, so the kind of... the Presbyterianism is, is, is fairly strong in me. Um, and, and I know that what Kate said um, and what Kate believes comes from a position of absolute faith. And I would never, ever um, disrespect somebody who uh, adheres uh, to their faith in this way and, and lives their faith because, you know, that is a genuine position. But it, it did... I found it quite shocking, actually, to find issues that I thought were resolved suddenly back on the table, particularly issues about my own life, about my relationship, um, saying that, you know, it was wrong to have children out of wedlock. So my, my beautiful, cheeky, adorable, like, four-year-old son in some way is wrong. I, like, the, the kind of, the lioness in me, like, was, she said, what? <laughs> you know, like, proper kind of got very defensive in a way. You, you know, when you do politics for a really long time, sometimes you don't find policies and so visceral. But I, I found myself almost fairly angry at that concept because of, like, my lovely, beautiful thing. Um, and I needed to calm myself down. But, but, but even the idea that, you know, in, in rape, uh, you cannot... A, a, a woman doesn't get the choice to choose in, in the abortion and, and things like that. I mean, I, I, I did disagree and I, I did find it... Um, I did find it challenging to... to um, to, to see all of these things that I thought had been decided and had majority support and had passed cross-party, to find them all back up for grabs again. Because growing up in the time that you did, you know, like 10 years ago, um, when you were in the Tory party... Stop. But, but there must have been elements of... You know, the Tory party used to be the party of Section 28. And, you know, when I was growing up in the Labour party, the Labour party was the one bringing in rights for gay people and all sorts of other people as well. I mean... Was it difficult to be uh, a lesbian in the Tory party at the time that you joined? Um, actually, weirdly not. So when I was... I mean, I had a really odd kind of start in politics in that the day I arrived in Parliament, my leader <laughs> resigned, and then I subsequently stood for leadership. So within six months of becoming a professional politician, I was suddenly in charge of a political party, and that, that kind of never happens. It was a bit of a weird kind of black swan moment. But, um, I, I mean, I was the first openly gay parliamentarian elected for the Tories in Scotland across the European Parliament, across Westminster, across Holyrood. In 2011, that's not prehistory, but it was all right. And when I was running for the leadership, actually, I think more of the questions were about being a woman than they were about being gay. It was, it was, and, and the questions that did come about being gay invariably came from the press and not from the membership, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and, and maybe it was just because I was very upfront about it and I wore it quite lightly. Um, but... What was the rest of your question? It was about um, being a lesbian in the Tory party yeah. and whether that had ever been challenging. I mean, the David Cameron Tory party looks a lot different from, like, a Liz Truss Tory party. <laughs> so Ella Braverman Tory party, you know? So, so yeah, at the time, no, honestly, it was, it was all right. I mean, I mean, it... And I, I hope I worked kind of hard to make sure that for anybody else coming through the ranks... Um, 
that wanted to get involved, that they could see that the party was for them, no matter what the background was, whether it was age or educational background or social background or ethnicity or, or sexuality. Because you need, like, political parties need lifeblood from everywhere. They need, you, you know, you need to have, you know, there's no point having sort of 11 goalkeepers on the pitch. You, you need a striker and a midfielder and all the rest of it. Well, it'd be interesting to see what would happen with 11 goalkeepers. <laughs> Well, Fabian Bartes had a good strike on him. He used yeah, to take a penalty. Well, we're, we're, I'm, I'm worried that Forrest are going to get relegated. I wonder if 11 goalkeepers actually might be a sensible move. Well, you um, get, well, if Dean Henderson's one of them, you get a lot of leaks to the press. <laughs> you, um, you periodically... Because you're a Manchester United fan, obviously. Yeah, you periodically lent, text me about like, niche, James Garner it was last season. Yeah, no. Oh, man, you did such good work with him. And then he, like, we sold him to Everton and he's not getting a game. I know he was injured, but it's such a shame because he's got such good prospects, that lad. Such a good footballer. Um, but I'm not going to fall for your destruction okay. technique. So, um, when... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You said there actually that more questions were about you being a woman. So was there a bit of sexism? Um, I think because Holyrood was so young, um, there'd only been two Tory leaders. Uh, one was David McCletchy, the next was Annabel Goldie. And then to have another woman after that, I think, was, you know, what sort of changes do we want to make? And, and over that period, we declined every year, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. so I, I, think, I think there were questions about, you know, what do we want our next leadership you know, our next leader to look and sound like and what background do we want them to come from? And, and that's all legitimate. Like, these things, these things are up to be discussed and it's up for you to build your platform and to explain how you'll use your life experience to be able to grab a party by the scruff of the neck and move it forward. But it's so funny that, when you think of it from a Labour perspective, have never elected a female leader in its entire history, the party of social inequality rights. Mm. And, you know, the constant conversation about, will they ever elect a woman? And then the Scottish Tories are saying, will we ever elect a man? Uh, <laughs> so funny that one of the things that's yeah, happened well, is you know, there's, I mean, Just to be serious for a second, but there's a really, really interesting uh, study in Canada from one of the universities uh, that asked the question of their political parties, of why are women uh, suitable to be interim leaders, um, but not to be, you know, to, to yeah, be the full-time permanent yeah. frontman. Um, and it's so interesting that when a party gets into trouble, um, they'll call for like a solid deputy or a, a greybeard woman that's been around a long time to come in and sort it out and then run the camp, you know, run the leadership campaign and all the rest of it, but leave it to the lads to actually run it. And, and actually, UK Labour's done that a couple of times now. Patricia Hewitt and... Margaret Beckett. Margaret Beckett. Harriet Harman. Yeah, exactly. And there is something in that. Like, when you're in the shit, why do you call on a woman but decide that, you know, when the good times roll, that's not what you want? But obviously the Scottish stories have, 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 have the opposite problem. Um, you, uh, you mentioned your son there, Finn. Four years old already. Four and, and a it, half. It, it, it feels... I swear he was a babe in arms like yesterday. But yeah, he's going to school in summer. And do you think that has changed your outlook on politics at all? Um... I say that, he. <laughs> I, meant, I meant being a mum. Yeah, yeah, I mean, let's not call him it, shall we? That's just, <laughs> that's just rude. Uh, but, um... His pronouns are it slash that. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he's been naughty. His pronouns are a lot worse than that. Uh, but Do you swear in front of him at all? I, so, Jen, my lovely, lovely potty-mouthed Irish wife, and I try very hard not to. Um, however, occasionally, and he's, he's right at the parrot stage, and occasionally something might squeak out that he picks up. And the other day, the, the dog was on the sofa... And he just turned to him. He went, "Oi, dickhead, move!" And I was, <laughs> you know, and I was so happy because that is absolutely a hundred percent hers. Like she has to own that because she's the one that calls that the dog sometimes. So I was like, "Yes, that wasn't me that polluted his little pure and innocent young mind." So I was like, "Yes." <laughs> I mean, that's not his name. <laughs> his name is Wilson. But um, but yeah, that's that was very much an Irishism. And I was like, "Phew, that wasn't me." That's really funny. So. Um, <laughs> But other than that, are you a good mum or should social services be worried? I hope I'm a good mum. I mean, I think... I mean, the, the thing that nobody tells you is that, you know, half of all being a mum is cuddling and the other half is Tupperware. And if you've got the right Tupperware and you send them to nursery with it, they're kind of all right. So, yeah. So what's... Uh, Tupperware for what? Not just foodstuffs, but... Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that's, that's something that as non-parents could get on board with. Yeah, yeah. I've got one bit of Tupperware. That's not enough. What I think... Okay, this is my view on Tupperware. <laughs> is when I see people who decanted their cereal into Tupperware, I just think, surely that's going to go stale faster. I, I mean, do you think I'm like the kind of woman that decants their cereal into Tupperware of a okay, morning? Okay, so if not cereal, then, then what are you putting in Tupperware? Well, when he goes out to nursery, he gets like little chopped up bits of strawberry and he like gets his sandwiches in a Tupperware and he... Okay. like. So as a lunchbox? Yeah, yeah, exactly, a lunchbox, yeah. But then around the house? And then when he was little, little, when, you, when he starts on solids and stuff like that, you, like, whiz up stuff in the blender and then you freeze lots of it so it goes into little plastic containers. OK. Predominantly I mean, I don't think this is going to be, like, the bit that makes the highlight reel of your show, if I'm honest about no, I, just... I mean, like, far be it from me to tell you your job. <laughs> and, and I have huge respect. I mean, this man has to write an entire new show, the first half of your show, every fortnight. And comedians never do that. Like, the work no. ethic that you have is unbelievable. Yeah. And especially the fact that lots of it will never get used again. That's right. I mean, the next challenge is to make it funny. That's well, the bit that I... you know, that's baby the, steps, man, baby favorite. steps. <laughs> no, I know that... It's just... I, I, it, I used one bit of Tupperware this week. It's been on my mind. So when you mentioned it, I thought... <laughs> it's like that confirmation bias thing. I think, yeah. is everyone talking about Tupperware? And am I missing out? Is this mm. the latest thing? Um, obviously not. Um, I mean, it was really just a throwaway comment. And yeah. I, it's like that way when you have to repeat it. You know, I know, I, I realise like, now. Yeah. I've been a fool. Should we um, reverse out of this cul-de-sac? Yeah, I'll tell you what. Let's, okay, let's, let's do it. Pop it in a bit of Tupperware. Yeah. Stick it on the shelf. And we'll yeah. come back. Keep it fresh for later. Yeah. Um, you've obviously led a very varied life. And you've, you know, you alluded there to Sunday school, but you've been involved in, you've done stuff with the army, mm-hmm. you've been to Kosovo, you've, uh, you, 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 uh, uh, didn't you try stand-up comedy once? So. Is that true? <coughs> Technically, yes. Okay. So Same. I was <laughs> at university uh, doing a, th- a thing in Athens and Greece, this big international competition thing. What competition? It was the World Debating Championships. I was a proper geek. Uh, and you were taking part in it? Yeah. And, and how did you Greece do Greece and then the Philippines. Uh, I did all right. I didn't, didn't win it, but I did okay. Okay. Um, okay. And I was very drunk. And there was an open mic night. And I decided that it would be a brilliant idea 
uh, in a room that was 80-20 men to women, because international debating was about 80-20 men to women, uh, to stumble on stage, having never done stand-up comedy in my life, uh, and didn't have any material or a structured act, no type five, yeah. uh, and open with to an international audience, about probably only 30% had English as a first language, to open with a gag about a woman's yeast infection. And I did not last long in that stage. Uh, and I have never done stand-up comedy again, because I'm nothing if not willing to learn. So what was the gag? <laughs> the look of terror in your eyes, because you know what it is. See how I said about learning curves? Yeah. I think discretion is going to be the better part of valour here. And I'm not going to mention crusty gussets at all. <laughs> They were, uh, they were a great two-piece sketch Yeah, they were a great band. That were on after you. Um, <laughs> so you tried to stand up, and then you never thought of doing it again? <laughs> no. I was, was physically removed from a stage mat. <laughs> what, security got involved? No, the audience physically <laughs> removed me from the stage. And Because I always got the sense with you, and I think with some politicians it's more obvious than others, but the, you, you could have... You could have been in the West End before this. You could have... I could think I have been a contender, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I think you could, <laughs> but you could have been an actor or something. Couldn't you? You've got a kind of starry quality about you, don't you think? Was there anything else? Would you ever tried singing or acting or anything like that? Oh, I, I genuinely can't sing. Dreadful singer. Um, I, I, yeah, I liked, I'd, I'd set up a theatre group at my school. I did a, I did a play. That was all right. But, um, but no, I mean, I, I genuinely, growing up, Wanted to be an English teacher, went to university, decided I didn't want to be an English teacher, uh, wanted to be a war correspondent, wanted to be K80. That was what I decided I wanted to do. Okay, uh, but that's, that's sort of TV, that's reporting, that's yeah, kind of... Yeah, kind of. Well, when I was in radio, I spent ages trying to get into TV, got into TV and went, oh, God, this takes ages and is rubbish. Uh, I'm going back to radio. Because I actually, I, I love speech radio, love it. Okay, so it was, it was proper, like, broadcast journalism. It wasn't, hey, yeah. it's Ziggy in the Morning crew. Oh, with... no, 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 no. No, it was always oh, kind of new, using current affairs. And, sorry, what? I don't know, like commercial <laughs> no, no, no. radio. So, no, like... it's, it's, it's always been kind of news and current affairs. And I like, oh. I like people's stories. I like talking to people. So I did a, a show um, which you very kindly uh, appeared in one of the editions on for LBC where we did a, a sort of 45-minute deep dive, long-form interview about someone's whole life. And we did it we did over a year's worth. Uh, so that was, was a long interview. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, 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 do you know, you have to do a lot of research, actually. <laughs> really a lot of research. Um, and we had some really interesting people, uh, and I do a, a much faster-paced show on Time Radio on a Friday now. So I do three hours, news, current affairs, sport, culture uh, on a Friday, which I really enjoy. Love it. I just love talking to people. Well, you're very good at it. But I, I, I just wondered if there'd ever been... I, I think sometimes, obviously, I think some politicians are frustrated performers, and I just wondered if um, there was a path in which you'd have been an actor or... I don't think so. You tried comedian. I mean... Does. I don't really look like an actor, do I? There's not a lot of roles for short-haired, flat-shoed, overweight Scotswoman out there. No, but you, you create the role, dear. You, you put on a one-woman play at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah. Who's got time for that? For, well, I don't every year, but I was, you're, you've obviously... Yeah, yeah you're, I've, I've you're come and done your show at the Fringe. Uh, you've done it many times, it's always a great laugh. Um, but do you feel... You've, you strike me as an open person, you're sort of comfortable talking about... You know, some politicians don't like to talk about their children or their parents or their life or because you've got a very cheery demeanour and people might look at you and say, uh, you know, you're a successful person and you've had these multiple careers. Um, but it's not easy for you, is it? You know, you, you, you have difficulty with 
things in life, with, with family yeah. and things, and some people are comfortable talking about those things, and, and you always struck me as someone that's more comfortable than others, perhaps, in Yeah, so I, I think... Um, so I, I have kind of... I, I have where the, the wall is, and I know where the kind of limit is, so, you know, I don't... The, the pictures that I put of my son on social media, for example, are all from the back of his head. I've got really arty shots from the back of his head of him doing cute things, <laughs> uh, so you can't see his face and stuff like that, because, you know, he needs to have agency for, for me. It's not for me to choose what images exist of him uh, in the world. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think part of connecting with people uh, and part of leadership is being able to show yourself. And, and if people ask me questions that I don't want to answer, I'll say, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to answer that, and here's why, um, or, or whatever. And, and particularly around the time that I announced my pregnancy and, and when I first had Finn, um, because I was the first political leader to have had a child in office, there was lots of questions. And because I'm in a same-sex relationship, there was lots of questions about the kind of mechanics of it and the biology of it. And I was, I was very clear about the fact that, you know, when Finn's of an age, that he's got questions about where he comes from and how he came into being and all these other things that I want him to come and ask one of his mums. I, I don't want him to Google it. And, and you know, the internet is forever. So, so yeah, so there are, there are lines um, that Jen and I have discussed. Um, and I, I try not to, to do that. And I, I try not to tell anyone else's story, actually, because I, I don't have ownership of other people's stories. I only have ownership of my own. So that's the kind of, the kind of anchor points that I have. And, I mean, he's four now. Does he ask, does he say, oh, I've got two mums, but some kids at school have one mum or one dad? Or... Yeah, so, I mean, it's, um, it's interesting, actually, because it's so much more normal for different families to, to be around. And, and, you know, there are, you know, we were on holiday in, in February and there was, you know, a, a kid that we met at Waterpark that had two dads that we were chatting to because they were from Kirkcaldy and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's just... It's just more chilled than when I was growing up. And, you know, his nursery are great. And um, they ask, you know, on our first day, like, and, and, and what do we call you? Uh, and, and I was like... Well, it's Baroness Davidson. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, oh, well, what does Finn call you? And, uh, it, well, Baroness Davidson. <laughs> no, see, we made a, a, an error in that we didn't define it before he started speaking. So we sort of were having a tussle over who got to be mum and who got to be mummy because we both wanted mum because you grow out of mummy, but you never grow out of mum, so whoever got mum got to keep it forever. So we had a little bit of a tussle over that. But then he was speaking, and then he just decided that he was going to call us big mummy and little mummy. So that's what we are. So, like, his, like, deputy head teacher at nursery would be like, little mummy, he's forgotten his thing. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. But, but I lucked out because I'm little mummy, and Jen is absolutely black-affronted that she's big mummy, because she's taller than me, but thinner than me. So, yeah. Uh, uh, and obviously, you are Baroness Davidson. Um, do you enjoy life in the House of Lords? It's very different. Um, it's very different to Holyrood. Uh, I've only been there coming up for two years now. Still don't have... I've still not been allocated an office or a desk or anything like that. So things move slower. Uh, so I, I squat in someone else's office, which is very kind, uh, that they let me sit in there and, and use their desk and their uh, computer um, when I go. But, you know, I, I'm sure I'm on a list somewhere. <laughs> I wouldn't assume that. I, I, I think <laughs> yeah, I maybe need to noise somebody up about it. I did speak to the whip <clears throat> that I had when I first came in, but it's changed, so I maybe need to speak to someone again. But what about the chamber itself? I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a regal place, but does party think, oh, man, this is less life in here than there is in Holyrood or the Commons? Um, it's very polite. I mean, it's the kind of debating equivalent of, like, linen napkins and, you know, 
silver cutlery, uh, whereas Hollywood's a bit more red in tooth and claw, I think is fair to say. Um, so it is demure. But, I mean, the experience that you have in there, the knowledge that you have in there, I mean, you have a debate on Ukraine and you've got a former chief of the general staff standing up to talk about it, or Admiral Lord West, the like head of the Navy, and, and all that sort of stuff, or you've got a science uh, got a science debate, and there's all these professors with more letters after their name than in their name, and they've done all sorts of things. So, so I mean, in terms of, of just, you kind of look around and go, Jesus, like, some of the people in there are unbelievably impressive. Um, and in a weird way, it works, but I still don't think that the fact that it does work overshadows the fact that we should have an elected second chamber. And when something is brought forward to do that, I'll, I will vote myself out of existence. And I don't really like using my title because I'm very Presbyterian. And <laughs> see, see, every time you said it, there was like a bit inside me that just twitched. So, yeah. But that's, that's the price you pay for accepting elevation, I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess. obviously on social media, and, and again, it's the worst way to judge public opinion, but you, you've got a fair bit of uh, stick on there for taking yeah, a Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was also led. I mean... You know, Nicola went after me really, really hard when it was announced um, because it was a stick to beat me with. And what sort of stuff did she say? Um, I mean, just about, you know, turning your back in Scotland or leaving. And it was, it was all sort of... It, it was all a kind of dog whistle to the traitor narrative or not quite Scottish or going down south. I mean, all the stuff that, as a, somebody that believes in the United Kingdom, you get anyway. But, I mean, one of the things they've always been very good at doing is is encouraging the mob where to go and how to attack without actually making the attack so overt themselves. So, yeah. Was there part of you when you accepted it that thought, actually, this might cost me a bit of credibility and I'm prepared to pay that price, or actually, that's just people who disagree with me anyway and most people will be fine? Yeah, no, it was something I had to think about. And, and weirdly, what kind of tipped it in the balance was, was my parents, actually, because they both grew up in Glasgow Housing Estates, left school at 15 and 16, without qualifications, and, and, like, it's a really big thing, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was, it was for them, actually. So I'm getting emotional. So... No, no, <laughs> but, but they, they must be so proud of you. Mm. And, well, I, I presume they tell you that, and, the, and that, that must be a nice thing to hear. Yeah, well, they, they both have Alzheimer's, so they don't, they're not able to say much. But I'm sure they've really... I'm sure they've been proud of you for a long time. Yeah, they have. And also, it's... And my sister, who's a yes. doctor, so they're really proud. I'm Actually, they were proud that we were both able to go to university. Well, that's it. I mean, it's not the fact that you're in the House of Lords or anything like that, I guess. And it's not that you want them to say that you're proud. It's you're doing... You're imagining the life they had growing up and what you've been able to achieve thanks to their yeah. dedication and your... Yeah, up, and their hard work. And, and in terms of example, you know, my dad is so, like such a hard worker um, all his life. Um, and my mum, they had a very traditional marriage. My mum worked less when we were kids to, to look after us, but like her, the kind of values that she had, it was always like, you know, so you always had to look after books. You were never allowed to dog ear the pages. You were never allowed to disagree with your teachers. Like I would never come home and say, like a teacher shouted at me because my mum would never be up to school to shout with the teacher. She'd clip me around the ear for what on earth were you doing wrong? And I, I distinctly remember um, my second year, uh, parents' night and my second year report card. And I'd, had, I'd done quite well. I'd had ones and everything, which is the Scottish equivalent of A's. Uh, apart from in science, in general science, before it split into the different subjects for uh, standard grades, which are equivalent of all levels. Uh, I'd, had, I'd got a one for my result, but I'd got a two for effort. 
and I got such a bollocking for it. And I swear to God, my mother would have preferred me to get a lesser mark, but to have worked at my optimum rather than to have, you know, been in the sort of upper echelon to the class, but have slightly like been able to do it without applying myself to my full extent. And it, and it taught me a lesson. And I've, I've always attempted to, to work as hard as I can and do the best that I can for as long as I can. My mum was exactly the same. Yeah, it's quite. I think it's quite a working class was, thing, actually. Was, was the effort was the thing. Mm. It wasn't attainment, it was effort. It was, and it's, it's, can you look at yourself in the mirror at night and know that you've done your best? Yes. Well, it actually doesn't matter what you've done, as long as you know that you've done your best, that you've given maximum effort, you didn't hide, uh, then, then that's what you need to do. And, and it's a good life lesson. And, and you said your parents got Alzheimer's. I don't want to make me cry, but... Um, it must be very difficult. You know, this is something that society is coming to terms with. And mm. David Cameron is a big campaign yeah. in this area in dementia and Alzheimer's. And it feels like this is the thing that we're going to be talking about more as a country and, and that we're slightly behind on it. Um, from your perspective then, as a, as a daughter who's yeah. dealing with two parents that have it, and I have no idea at what stage they're at. Um, they're about five years after the diagnosis, so it's quite, quite far in. How adequate is... The NHS's provision for Alzheimer's. Um, I, I think there's so much more that we need to do, but there's so much more that we need to do at kind of every level. So, in, in terms of my own experience, um, you know, they've had a, a great family doctor. In terms of the fact that they are able to have visiting mental health nurses and things like that, that all happens. But in terms of a lot of the care, um, that's not NHS. Uh, at the moment, and, and when it comes to residential care, that won't be NHS either, um, because um, because of the the kind of accumulated sort of position that, that they're in. Uh, and I guess that's, in a sense, that's, that's kind of right, so that those who can pay do pay, but it, it feels odd in the sense that so many other conditions, that's not the case. But, um, but I'm not sure I want to get too deep into this, Matt, if that's OK. No, of course. Um... Let's lighten the mood. Is it true you ended up naked in front of uh, a load of um, squaddies in uh, Pristina? An entire regiment, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> How and why? Well, I blame Kate Aidy. Um, and it's because I had a mantra, which is, what would Kate Aidy do? So um, at the end of the Kosovo War, I was a baby journalist and uh, I took part in something called an Editors Abroad Scheme where you could go off and... and look at uh, and report back on your kind of local regiment. And mine was the Black Watch in Scotland. Uh, and they were based in downtown Pristina. Uh, and it was just at the kind of... It was in 2001, so it was just at the kind of end of the war, the kind of nation-building part uh, of the peacemaking. And uh, me and three other journalists, all men, were brought in and, uh, you know, were, were taken off the plane. Uh, the airport was controlled by the Russians, so everyone had guns. We got taken off the plane and put in a Land Rover and driven in through all the checkpoints to the to the base, which was the old police station uh, in in downtown Pristina, which is where they were barracked. Uh, and we were shown around, and the, the three lads were like, right, you're in this bunk room, and I was taking up this shrapnel-pitted staircase, which was brilliant. Like, my inner K80 was like, yassing. <laughs> uh, this shrapnel-pitted staircase and shoved in a, a supply closet uh, on, a, on a little bed, and I thought it was the best thing ever. And then we were taking Back in out. the closet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I wasn't out of the closet at that point. I didn't come out until my late 20s, uh, mid-late 20s, and this was, I was only 22. And... Uh, and um, we're taking it outside and like, this is your, there's some porta cabins, this is your toilet block and this is your ablutions block and this is your, your shower block. And then we were, you know, taken off to, you know, 
see a massacre site and all that sort of stuff. And then the next morning, got up and was like, need to have a shower, don't I? So what would Katie do? Just get on and just have a shower. She probably wouldn't want anyone to think that she's perving on the squaddies, though, so I'll just leave my contact lenses out so I can't see anybody. How the, would they know? I know. It made sense in my head. <laughs> Took my gear, went to the shower block. It's all open stalls. Okay. So I thought, well, I don't want to walk past any naked men. I'm 22. So I'll just put my gear on the bench and I'll dive in the first stall. Now, there is a problem with that, which is that everyone that comes in has to walk past you. Yeah. So... Honestly, the fastest shower I've ever had in my life. Great, went out, viewed an orphanage, whatever, came back, had dinner. Uh, we were all in the big mess hall. I was sitting next to the commanding officer, chat, 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 sir, 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 blah, blah, blah. And I like, just saw out the corner of my eye this like, little squaddy getting like, whatever. And he was clearly the runt of the litter. He was about 17 or something, you know, pimply. And he like, brought himself up to our table with the air of a man going to the gallows, like, just, just like, lurching towards us. Uh, and was just like, excuse me, ma'am, see you tomorrow. Do you use the women's showers? They're round the back. So, which is fine. And then, like, about a year and a half later, I actually joined the, the Territorial Army. And I was telling this story uh, in the bar uh, of our basic training. And one of our training sergeant went, that was you. I was there. I didn't recognise you with your clothes on. I was like, ah, oh, Jesus. So, yeah. So, so, yes, I got naked because nobody told me there was women's showers in an infantry regiment with no women. So, oh, yeah. man. Uh, <laughs> I mean, have you ever met Kate Sadie? She seems to be a big yeah. idol of yours. Yes, I have. I engineered it. Uh, there was an um, international relations uh, conference thing that happens in the borders every year in like this stately home in the middle of a forest. And they invited me to come and do an interview, like you're kind of doing with me, uh, about international relations. I was like, mm, that sounds a bit boring. Why don't I be the interviewer and I interview some journalists as a politician rather than have a... a, a a journalist interview the politician. Let's do it the other way around. So I, I asked if I could interview Kate Eady because I, I wanted to. Uh, and Alan Little as well. And we would talk about war correspondency and, and all the rest of it. And we did. And it was, you know, it was a lovely hour. We had a great time on the stage. And we went backstage uh, to the green room and we were chatting about how well it had gone. And uh, do you know what? Do you ever have that way where you're outside of yourself, listening to yourself, telling yourself to mm. shut the f up and you can't stop talking like yeah. you can't st you can't reverse out of like what you're going down and i was gabbling on to to kate Eady, who is like a genuinely delightful woman but quite deaf so i was gabbling quite loudly uh and then i just i heard myself going and when i was growing up you know i liked you in a way that i don't think either of us would be comfortable with now i was like oh my god like what have i done like she's like 17 not everybody of that age group is like cool with that like Whatever. But she was delightful and she gave me a peck on the cheek when I left and it was very nice. Oh, that's nice. I, know. I was a bit like, oh, Kate. So God. I didn't realise. So you had a crush on Kate, Aiden? Well, I, I'm not sure if I did because I, I, I kind of I came out quite late, so I didn't really know. But I mean, genuinely, when I was like 14, 15 growing up, you know, I only kind of paid attention to the news when Kate arrived. Like, that was when you knew a country was. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, if she hadn't got off the plane, it was probably going to be all right. But, like, once she was down those steps, you know, like, that country is, like, boom, it's gone. Yeah, she's re reporting from Scotland next week. So. <laughs> but but that, that must be kind of surreal, meeting a, a kind of celebrity crush. That's, that's kind of... Yeah, I mean, I guess. I'll tell you when I meet Gillian Anderson. <laughs> I'm sure we surely you could meet Gillian Anderson. Do you know I have tried? 
and the restraining order does not allow for that to happen. <laughs> oh my, I'll try and get, she must be a bit political. I think she is, I think she's a bit lefty, because the Guardian, no, the Observer, once did a thing where you had to do a thing with somebody from a different area of life that's famous in a different way and put you together. And I was like, mm, can I do that with Julian Anderson, please? Uh, and they got in touch with her people and she was like, heavy no. <laughs> so, so yeah, so it didn't happen. I mean, what a rejection. I mean, Julian Anderson used to investigate like aliens and freaks and mutants. And, 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 like, uh, and I'm too much for her, I know, awful. Draw the but, line. But not Tories. <laughs> no, I will tr I'll, try and, I'll try and interview on here and then I'll let you know. Okay, so... Why do you think you can be Gillian Anderson's pimp? Like, why no, do you think you can be Gillian Anderson's, like, no, because what fluffer? I'm, what How does I'm that work? Is, <laughs> what I'm saying is, I could approach Gillian Anderson to come on the show, next uh -huh. time she's got a film out or something, and then and I'll I could say, be the tea boy. Well, I'll just say, oh, have we got any questions? Oh, look, it's Baroness Davidson. <laughs> who's looking hot tonight, don't you agree, Gillian? <laughs> I'm sort of like engineer her. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, your wife not be, might not be too happy about it, but, you know. She'd want to come. <laughs> <laughs> and her lovely wife. Yeah, Listen, exactly. like open-minded, three-way kind of people. I don't know what Yeah, I mean, let, let's not make the headlines too lurid for no, this show, Matt. No, absolutely. Um, so, on, we should talk about politics a bit. Um, must we? I think it's fair to say you were frustrated with Boris Johnson. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Frustrated, obviously. Uh -huh. <laughs> Not the choices. Uh, seeing him again this week at the Privileges Committee, how did that make you feel? Um, I think... <sighs> oh, how do I answer this? Um, I think for me the issue about the failure of leadership was the bit that was so offensive to me. And for me, um, leadership is about setting the pace and the tone and it is about leading from the front and if you're not leading from the front and if you're not setting the tone then you're not leading and this idea that somehow because a permanent secretary didn't tell you you were breaking a rule a rule that you set you that's all right no it's not like i mean i cannot think if you go back can you think of theresa may or david cameron or gordon brown or tony blair or John Major. All the greats. Or, or Margaret Thatcher. Can you think yeah. of any of them if they had instituted the deprivations that we willingly entered into as a country and were the right thing to do, and I have no quibble with that part of it, but that deprive people of holding the hand of a dying loved one, wouldn't let them say goodbye at a funeral parlour, wouldn't let them do all of the, wouldn't let them go out their house, that they would think it acceptable that folk were going out with a fucking booze trolley to Tesco and loading up and having decks in the basement of number 10 for morale. Do you, I mean, can you imagine any single one of those prime ministers not, being, not believing that they had to set the example for the country that they were asking to follow? I mean, it's just the absence of leadership. You know, there will be people in this country that never forgive, not just Boris Johnson, but never forgive our entire party. And I don't blame them because, you know, having some of the people that I talked to, some of the constituents I had, some of the cases that I had to deal with, I just, like, it boggles my mind that that was allowed to happen because you could have been a key worker in anything. You could have been at Tesco. You could have been in a hospital. They, they shut staff rooms. Or the idea that if you'd, you know, somebody was leaving, you'd opened a, you know, a bottle of wine at the end of your shift during lockdown to say goodbye to someone and your manager had walked in. The idea that they would just join the party rather than absolutely leather you for it. And, you know, and, and hit, like, people did the right thing. And because of what, 
was happening in number 10, they feel foolish for having done the right thing. They feel foolish for having followed the rules and they feel guilty for not having broken the rules to see a loved one or whatever. And, and that's not what a prime minister should do. So, so yeah, um, I, I felt all of that came flooding back at the Privileges Committee and I don't blame the rest of the country for all of it coming flooding back to them either. But Ruth, you really did believe that he was within the room. I mean, when you see him do that, don't you think, oh, maybe he's got a point? No. <laughs> did it question, did it, did it test your faith in the party at all? Did you think, I can't be a member of this if this is going on? Um, do you know, it, it's funny, because I, I remember when Corbyn was Prime Minister of Labour, uh, sorry, Prime Minister, sorry, was leader of the party. Whoa. <laughs> Hold on. Another uh, secret crush? <laughs> I don't think. But I think it'd be easy for me to get Gillian Anderson on there. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, when, when, when Jeremy Corbyn was, was leader of the Labour Party and I was looking at, at, at kind of people like your Wes Streetings and your Jess Phillips and stuff like that who were felt deeply compromised by, by that and Mike Gapes and, and all that sort of stuff and, and thinking to myself, how can you stay in the party? But there is a point of which you say, but if... If I go and if people like me go, then it's only people like them that is that party. And actually, you know, I mean, I, part, parties are broad churches. And, you know, the fact that I was really, really comfortable in a kind of David Cameron era a Tory party, you know, I didn't have the hubris to think that, that that wing of the party would be the ascendancy forever, nor should it be, uh, nor was it our God-given right to be. Uh, of course, you know, the, the, the kind of pendulum would swing. But the idea that we're not all of these things... Uh, and the idea that you just, anybody who disagree, disagrees just walks away rather than kind of fights for the soul of the party, I, I, think, I think is defeatist. And I, I think it's wrong. And I think that makes parties narrower beasts. So I, I think there is, I, I found out, having looked at all of these Labour people and gone, why are you staying? I, I found out what it felt like. And, and, it, and it is conflicting. But there is a point of view that makes you want to like, just plant a flag and go, no, no, we deserve to be in this party too. So, so that's kind of how it felt. So Boris Johnson tested your faith a little bit. Um, how did Liz Truss fail? Well, I've always liked lettuce. Um, yeah, I mean, it didn't last very long, so, you know, in terms of the periods, yeah. I mean... But the economic legacy of it yeah. has outlasted her. On everybody's mortgage, thanks yeah. very much, uh, including my own. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it really, it really felt like things were freeing. And, and I think one of the things that will always be in Rishi Sunak's favour is the fact that he is so clearly um, somebody that believes in being across the detail. He believes in seriousness of purpose. He believes in doing the hard stuff. Um, he's not the flashiest politician in the land. I mean, for me, I would love it if he was a bit better at doing the big vision thing, because I think that's what's absent. And, and I think that's one of the things that's going to hurt him and, by extension, the party going into the next election. But in terms of just kind of quietly getting on with the job, I mean, God knows that's overdue. And I think it's immensely to his credit that he's applying himself to some of the tougher tasks, like Northern Ireland and the Windsor framework, like, you know, post-economic uh, trade deals, like... You know, sorting out the the um, security uh, deal between the US and Australia. And I was like, these these things are never going to, you know, win hearts and minds across the, the the blue wall, red wall, whatever you want to call the wall. Um, but 
they need doing, you know, and, and he's just quietly getting on with it, and I think that's immensely to his credit. Does it worry you, I mean, that Quartang budget and, and the Liz Truss weeks, does it worry you about the party, that that libertarian wing could not just seize control of the party, but the machinery of state, ignore the Treasury, the Office of Budget Responsibility, do tax cuts at all costs? I mean, that really was the kind of equivalent of the Corbyn moment, wasn't it? That was a fringe element within the party was able to take it over and, and wreak havoc at the heart of the state. D does that make you worry more about the party in a way than, than the Johnson experience? I mean, I think, I think what's difficult about that is one of the obviously there's a huge benefit to the fact that it that it was short and and you know <laughs> it, it it you know we're now working back from it. Yeah. Um, I I think what is going to be difficult into the future is there's always going to be that schism within the party that thinks that it, it just wasn't tried for long enough. And in the same way with Jeremy Corbyn, it was like, oh, but if he'd just become prime minister, you could have seen it in action. And, and like, true socialism has never been tried. And, you know, so you've, you've always kind of got those ones that, that challenge you to prove a negative almost in a way. And I, and I think, um, you know, the, the kind of way in which... There are some people that are, are so ideological um, that, that they think that if we'd just seen that through, it would have come good and we could have showed the world. And, and that Reaganomics, without being the currency of last resort, would somehow just miraculously have worked and we would have tamed the international markets and stuff. Um, you, you know, I, I, that kind of... That argument, I think, is not going to die within the party and I think that's going to be really unhelpful. And, and looking forward to the next election then, I mean, what do you think the most likely outcome is? I mean, I think, I mean, I know everyone got terribly excited about the sort of we're within 10 points poll last week. I mean, you look at it today, it's 21 points in, in, in today's polling. So I think it's difficult. It's difficult for the, the Tories to come back. And I think that um, it's also going to be difficult when you've had a succession of leaders that have undone what the leader before is. You don't have a narrative of what these Tory years have been. So, you know... Post-Cameron, you had things like the 0.7%, that's now been undone. You'd had things like gay marriage, but now you've got a fight about GRR. You know, in terms of just having that, like, overarching arc of what you tell the country that, that conservatism is, we, we, don't, we don't have that. And that's why we kind of need a vision thing um, from, from Rishi Sunak. But, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be a tough election. And because in Scotland, it seems to be that, or certainly the idea was floated this week, that the Scottish Tories would say to people... Vote, vote tactically to get the SNP out. Now, it doesn't look like Labour are going to reciprocate that, and I understand why they would say that publicly, and I understand why they would say yeah, that privately. And, and, and also, like... Oh, yeah, don't vote for us, guys. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> that's been done at every election for ages. Yeah. But, but, I mean, I, I think the point is, with all the kind of narrative that's going on around sort of Labour increasing the polls, I, I think the point the Scottish Party was making was there are lots of constituencies around the country where Labour are not at the races. It's a two-horse fight between the SNP and the Tories. So make a decision about who it is that you want. Yeah. Because obviously, for some people... Now, if it's all about the union, then that binary lens works, doesn't it? But for, I guess yeah. for a lot of people, it's not. And then yeah, and Labour should, voters won't say, actually, I'd rather have the SNP. Uh, I mean, it, it shouldn't be forever a constitutional question. And I think that's held Scotland back, the fact that that the prism of, of constitutional <laughs> politics has been overlaid over everything else and to the detriment. And, you know, the, the real kind of, kind of tragedy in Scotland is if you think about all of the capacity and all of the effort and all of the manners and all of the time that's been put into a fight about the Constitution, if all of that resource had been put into health, 
education, connectivity, public services. You know, you might have ferries that float and you might have a, you know, a, a hospital waiting list that's less than seven years for one of the hospital waiting lists we've got at the moment. You know, you could have a, you could have a better Scotland. Yeah, but I'd have less jokes. So the, the kind of... Fewer, yeah, Matt, fewer. Uh, uh, fewer. Oh, on. damn it! Oh. Oh. Standards. Oh. Standards. Oh. I'm going to remember that forever. <laughs> Oh, just, you like, no, that went straight you, in the drawer. You like the smack of firm government. I saw you. There <laughs> okay. we sort of excitement there. Um, we've got time for a couple of audience questions. So if you could indicate very clearly, someone right at the front already has. So yes, um, if, so I don't have a roving mic. I do need to sort this out. I, I realise, you know, I'm, uh, I feel like Hamza Youssef. Um, I don't know why this show doesn't have a roving mic, but when I find out who's responsible, I will get a roving mic. So I have to... Um, I will have to just repeat the question if oh, that's okay. Like, oh, I can see you. Hello. For, for the benefit of the tone. <laughs> Hello. Yes. Uh, so thanks for mentioning section 28. Thanks for mentioning what? Section 28? Yes. Yep. So as a gay teen in the 90s, I would never be education I got. And I'm pretty sure the only reason I don't have HIV or indeed AIDS is because the community gave me information. Is it not time for the Conservative Party So that's a really good question. So I'll just repeat it. Yeah. Um, as someone who grew up gay in the eighties, the only reason you 90s. think you, uh, 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 I, I mean, looking at I you, mean, I'd have said noughties. I'd have said noughties. Looking at you. I mean, um, in, in gay years, you just called that man a geriatric. Like, oh come God. on, um, Matt. Um, but this lovely, youthful-looking man was saying um, <laughs> that he thinks the only reason you didn't get HIV or AIDS was the community uh, education. Is it not time for the Tory party to apologise for um, its policies at that time and make a donation to a, 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 an appropriate charity? Yeah, well, first of all, they have. David Cameron went to Stonewall to their annual conference and he made a, a, a huge, fulsome uh, and unequivocal public apology and was right to do so. Uh, and I think that, yeah, we do need to make sure that we've got... Um, proper education that looks at all of the different things that, that kids are dealing with. And, and I think particularly, and this takes us into a whole different realm, but, you know, as, as somebody that now has children, I, I kind of worry about not what schools teach their kids particularly or what parents teach their kids, but what they learn from elsewhere. Mm. Um, and the fact that intimacy is about more than just sex and the fact that you can get Pornhub on, you know, a smartphone from the age of, you know, whatever, that the kids get phones these days, I, I do worry that we need to do more and that schools need to do more and that organisations need to do more. And it's hard. You know, it is hard. But, but in terms of that apology, it's, it's been given. Uh, the party... I mean, David Cameron was right to do so. I think the issues that we have is there are some people within the party uh, who don't believe it. <coughs> was wrong. I think some people, and we've talked about Kate Forbes, within lots of parties that don't believe that it was wrong. But it was wrong, and it damaged people. Kate Forbes, I'm so glad okay. you've become leader. Okay, I've got time for a couple of other... It's always um, men who put their hands up first, so uh, a, 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 a woman question would be good. Oh, no, you're a man. Fucking hell, I'm making a right or mess of this. But I will take your question, because I did come to you. It's because it is very hard to see people. Uh, yeah. um... But I will come to you next. Politics might look like now. 
So Ruth, do you ever allow yourself to wonder what um, is great? Do way I to ever play it. fantasy cabinet yeah. in the bath? Uh, do you, do you, who okay, who would I'll be come, my foreign secretary? Uh, okay. uh, uh, but do you ever allow yourself to wonder what would have happened if you'd have stood for the leadership of the Tory Party and what sort? Well, of I've never been in a position where it was an option because I've never been an MP. So yeah, but you, you know could what I mean? Have, so it's, it's like it's never, it's never. I've never had to think about it. But if Cameron you know would have found you a safe seat, wouldn't he? If you'd have said, if David Cameron would have found you a safe seat, if you'd have said, look, I, I want to be your successor, let's do a bit of succession planning, or I want to be a member of parliament... I'm not sure there's many political leaders that have a young whippersnapper that says, I kind of want to push you out the door, can you make it happen for me? That think, do you know what, that's a brilliant idea, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of not how politics works, as you know, Matt. OK, but, okay, so, but then to engage with the other... If you do play fantasy cabinet in the bath... What position... You, yeah, I, that's what I said, so yeah, let's run with it. I, I presume you make yourself Prime Minister. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think... Well, one, I, I, I don't. That was a throwaway okay. line that, once again, you've clung on to with yeah. your talent hands. So you've got um, your little Tupperware in the bath. Yeah, I've got and... a little Tupperware in my bath. I use it as a bow. No, um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I think, for me, in kind of more recent iterations, I, I, I kind of think, where are, the, where are the people that you put on TV? So where are the people that have got um, warmth as well as strength? Uh, who are not just across the detail of the brief, but can actually relate to the public, can look and sound like somebody that you would go to the pub with, whether it's your kind of Justine Greenings or your Stephen Crabs or, you know, uh, the, the people that you would put up for the Sunday shows that made the Tory party look and sound normal. Actually, like, where are they in the cabinet now? There's, there's guy few of them, uh, if, I, if I might be so bold, and I've just seen in my head what the headlines are going to be after this question um, <laughs> and how much trouble I'm going to get in. But, but you know what I mean? And, and I think... We have those people and we need to push them front and centre. OK. And, uh, yes, uh, the woman there. Yeah, um, considering how, like, categorically surprising that you're a Tory, <laughs> um, if, if you were to go into any party, like, either within the UK or even internationally, what party would you support? OK. Considering that it's categorically surprising that you're a Tory, <laughs> uh, if you could go into any other party, let's say the UK, because that's more interesting, if you could go to any other party in the UK, what would it be? I was kind of brought up to believe that you dance with the person that brung you. So I think I'll probably stay a Tory. But if the Tory party didn't exist, this is like a new future <laughs> where um, <laughs> conservatism never existed in its but, current form. Yeah, so um, in it's terms of... apocalyptic Because the questioner included yeah. uh, international... Um, like, if, if this was the States, I, I did a bit of American history as part of my degree, and I'm really interested, I'm a bit geeky about American politics. A lot of people think that the overlay between the UK and, and America is such that, you know, the Tories are Republican and, and Labour is Democratic. But actually, their whole prism is sort of further to the right. So I'd, I'd very clearly be a kind of blue dog Democrat, which is a, a kind of fiscally conservative, but um, socially more liberal um, person over there and, and would be much more comfortable in that space than, okay. than even as a log cabin Republican. Okay, so new Labour. <laughs> new, new Labour. Is that my third wave? Uh, <laughs> Davidson says, bring back Blair. And the crowd went wild. Do you know what, it's funny, what, growing up, I, I couldn't stand him. Like, he always seemed so false to me. I, no, I, I'm, let me get to the end of the story. I know, um. I, I know, you know, you and John Runtool are still waving the flag, but um, <laughs> he just always seemed so insincere to me. He was like a, oh, a used on, car man. salesman. And I, I've actually met him several times uh, since he left office, and I've... I've Done. He's been on. He's very kindly agreed to do some stuff for me, and I've done some stuff for him and for his foundation. Uh, and like against my better judgment, I actually really like him on a personal level. And yeah. he's bright and he's engaged. And 
he still he still wants to make a difference in the world. Like there's still that kind of fire. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I mean, this was the thing, Ruth, about you know getting together. And I know you had your concerns, but look, I think what you've got now is, and I think the Democrat you know, example is really important actually because. You've got people here that fundamentally, when it comes to social policy, we're absolutely on the same page. In fact, you might even be more progressive than I am. But, you know, <laughs> I know that you had your concerns about me. You thought I was insincere. You know, all I can say about that is... Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. There we are. Um, so, Ruth, um, before we let you go... Um, oh, there was one last thing. Final, final question. I know that you um, did a bit of kickboxing. Um, one of your many other strings to your bows. And my question is, does who wins in a fight? Ruth Davidson, the kickboxer, or Dominic Raab, the karate <laughs> person? Oh, my God, how much trouble do you want to get me into? Um, he's, he's, a, he's a big unit and he keeps himself in good shape, so let me, let me cede to Mr Raab. Okay, um, I, I get that there's a sort of physical logic to that, but um, I guess my question was more was, if you could punch him in the face, <laughs> how much pleasure would that give you? <laughs> no, it's purely for self-defence. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not taking me down this. I'm, I'm wise to you, Ford. Okay. I can see where you're leading me. Well, just, it, was just a, it was just a political question. <laughs> There was no other um, element to it at all. Uh, Ruth, it is always a pleasure. And it's been so long, and it's so cool getting to interview you in London. So thank you so much. And what a wonderful evening this has been. Please, a huge thank you for the one and only Ruth Davidson. Well, there you go, Ruth Davidson. I mean, just what an amazing person to spend time with. And um, just so funny, so just, you know, some people obviously are, when they're politicians, they have to show a certain side of themselves. But with Ruth, you just sense that she's just completely open and comfortable with who she is in every regard. And um, just totally honest, uh, really good fun. And just loves life. And I think that really comes across, actually. Now, I, I don't think there's a left or a right thing to, to be um, gleaned from that. I just think there are some people in life that you meet, and not just in politics, that just love life and, and love what it can potentially offer and, and realise that it's fragile. Uh, and that it's there to be enjoyed, if possible. And uh, she's someone who definitely, uh, you really get that sense with her. So uh, what a treat that was. And don't forget to come to the next show on Monday, the 17th of April with Jess Phillips. Uh, and just such a megastar. Uh, on the 22nd of May, David Blunkett. On the 5th of June, Philip Hammond. 19th of June, I'll be able to announce that very, very soon. And the 3rd of July with Joe Lysett. So always a great mix of guests uh, obviously, I think you should come to them all. So I'll see you there. Ta-ra. Bye. Bye.